here. So it's John chapter 2, starting at verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, Truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of that which we know, and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, and whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed but whoever does what is true comes to the light that it may be clearly seen and that his works have been carried out in God let's pray Heavenly Father, 
when we come to this text, we see so many different truths. We see our lack of ability to save ourselves and the magnificent work which God has done to save sinners like me. We thank you for your word. And we pray that as we see the light, Jesus Christ himself in your word, that we would be drawn to the light. That your Holy Spirit would allow us not to uh, draw back because of the sin that might be exposed, the guilt that might we might feel or the shame that we might sense, but that we would, despite the guilt and shame that we feel, that we would go to Jesus knowing that He is the Son of God, knowing that if we confess our sins and turn to Him, that He will not turn us away, that He will be just and good to forgive us our sins. Heavenly Father, I pray that Your Word would be made effective in our hearts. Lord, we receive the command to go out and teach the nations, disciple them in all the teachings of God. I pray that as we read this, that we would learn that as we go, as we are commanded, that we would be relying on the power of the Holy Spirit in every aspect of that obedience. Lord, we love you and we praise your name. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. So here at Providence, for like the past four months, we've been going through kind of a series. And it's evangelism instruction. And Kevin started off with this, uh, this series talking about what evangelism is, what it is not, and how we can measure if we're successful in our efforts to share the gospel to share the good news of God, of Jesus Christ, with people. And then he got into, really what the, and he has been, going through that first measure of success that he laid out, which is, if you're going to be successful in sharing the gospel, you need to present the gospel accurately. That's kind of key. If you're going to present God's message, you need to make sure that it's God's message, not just Nick Krause's message, or insert your name there. That is actually his message, so it needs to be accurate. That's of primary importance, and that's what Kevin has been doing. Kevin has been going through a six-point outline, and he only has one point left of how to present the gospel accurately, and that uh, tract is in the back table on the left-hand side. It's a two-ways-to-live tract. And last time... I focus on the second measure of success. So the first one is present the gospel accurately. The second one is that you actually go and do it. That you actually take God's message and bring it to the lost because that's commanded of us. And not only is it commanded of us, but as we looked in Ezekiel, we see that we don't want to have people's blood on our hands. We don't want to bear the guilt and responsibility of not sharing with people that if you die in your sins, then you'll go to hell. That if you die outside of Christ, that you'll be separated from God. We want to tell people, we want to make sure that we feel that responsibility that we have to our neighbor, that we actually 
love them enough to tell them that they're in danger. And I thought my last contribution to this evangelism series would be to look at the third measure of success. So the first measure of successful evangelism is that you present the gospel accurately. The second measure of success is that you actually do it. And then the third one is just as simple as the first two. That while you are presenting the gospel to people, that you do it with reliance upon the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to this text, and what we'll see in this text as an application of it, why it is necessary to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit, and how God actually saves people. And that's, those two things are intimately connected with one another. And the main point is this. The reason why we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit in our evangelism is because salvation in the Bible is presented as divine intervention. And we're going to see why it is that we need this divine intervention and how God divinely intervenes. And this is something I didn't say the last time, but what I want to make clear this time, which is the Bible is not an instruction manual for how to do things. So when we were looking at Ezekiel last time, the main point of reading that text was not to give us instruction on exactly um, how we are to witness to people. That was a message God gave to Ezekiel at a particular time in history for a particular purpose that had primary relevance to Ezekiel himself and then to his original audience. And the same thing is true in this text here. But what I'm doing is I'm looking at the good and necessary consequences of those truths. When you read the Bible, this not, it's not an instruction manual. Like when I'm reading the Gospels, this is not in primarily an instruction manual for how to witness to people. But when we read the Gospel, see who Jesus is and see what he teaches people, it's going to necessarily impact the way that we evangelize people, the way that we live our lives, the way that we go about our business at work. I just want to make that clear before we head into the text. And I'm starting at a, kind of an odd place. I'm starting at verse 23 in chapter 2. And the other necessary note before to let you guys know is that the, the chapter numbers, verse numbers are, I think, really helpful for points of reference, but they're not inspired. They weren't part, you know, when Paul was writing his gospel, when Paul was writing his letters, he did not say chapter one, verse one, then start writing. No, those were added in later for a point of reference. And I think that to best understand this test is to start at verse 23. Because 23 through 25 forms a frame that's going to mirror in chapter 3, 19 through 21, that's going to really help us to understand this text. And I hope that you see why. So if I start in verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem, that's Jesus, at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part 
did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. That word in verse 24, that Jesus did not entrust himself to the people. Isn't that weird? At least it struck me as weird. And I've always kind of wondered, you know, why people are believing in him, but Jesus is not entrusting himself to them. Well, first, that word entrust is the same word. It's faith. So you could say that, that, that the people had faith in Jesus, but he did not have faith in them. And the reason why is said, verse 24, that because he knew all people, for he himself knew what was in man, verse 25. See, so far in John's gospel, in the very prologue describing basically all of his life, it it describes Jesus in chapter 1, verse 9, that the light of the world had come in, but that the dark that his own people did not believe him, did not follow him. So we kind of get an idea of what's going to happen. And what we have throughout chapter 1, the rest of chapter 1 and in chapter 2, is we see how Jesus knows people intimately. Chapter 2, uh, in chapter 2, verse 46, he, Nathaniel, not knowing Jesus, says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? But Jesus showed in the following Five verses that Jesus knew Nathaniel. He saw him praying underneath a fig tree. We see Jesus has this insight, profound, supernatural insight into this people that he's speaking with. And not only that, but then he performs miracles. The first miracle happening in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, that there was a wedding feast that happened, and Jesus turned water into wine. And we get the summary statement in our text. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus had his first sign in chapter 2, and he started doing other signs that you can read about if you read the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So he was doing all these signs. He was doing miracles, signs that point to the fact that Jesus, his message, is from God. That's obvious to everyone. But it doesn't say what kind of faith that they have. We don't see, we know that they are following, interested in Jesus, knowing that he comes from God. But it doesn't describe their heart. That does not necessarily describe that they are following Jesus because they love him, that they love God's ways. Actually, what we see is that Jesus knows what is in man's heart. We see that what he knows about man in an example of this. Notice how many times in verse 25, it says man twice, and then 3 verse 1, man again. Uh, Verse 25, he and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man Now, therefore, there was a man. What are we getting here? We see that Jesus has not entrusted himself to people believing him, even though they believe him because of the signs. Because he knew what was in man. 
And what we're getting in the person of Nicodemus is an example of the type of people Jesus is not entrusting himself to. There was a man, this type of man, a man who was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him by night and said to him, this is verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. This whole conversation with Jesus from this point, it feels kind of weird, doesn't it? You get to, you get to feel Jesus not entrusting himself to Nicodemus. He's not addressing his questions directly. He's kind of standing off from him. He's telling him realities and telling him that he's wrong. It, it seems like he's kind of speaking past him. Nicodemus is an example of something that we're going to have explained to us. And for the sake of time, we're going to be looking at the truth that this passage teaches and not walk through everything like this. Skip down with me to chapter to verse 19. Because we get an insight into this man and why he's having trouble believing. Why are the people, after even though they see the signs and know that Jesus comes from God, why they're not following Jesus, why he doesn't trust himself to them. Verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. We haven't seen the divine intervention yet. But the framing material of this section is why divine intervention is needed. Why divine intervention is necessary to save people. And to use the words of John, the Apostle John, it's the idea of darkness. That people are in darkness and they love darkness. So an important question is, is in those verses, and it's actually a recurring metaphor that, re, that kind of reverberates throughout the Gospel of John, is this contrast of light and darkness. This darkness is the same kind of darkness that we talk about when we say nothing good happens after midnight. What does that mean? That nothing good happens after midnight? It's parents telling their kids that they need to get home on time because we know that whatever's going on after midnight with their friends, they're not up to any good. In the ancient world, darkness was a symbol of danger because if you think about it, before the 1800s, before light was a, something that we could just flick a switch and have it come on, darkness would mean danger. I read this, uh, this was an article about the Roman, the Roman city and how they viewed darkness. This night was, the night was especially a time to be afraid. As dusk fell, the city shut down, and anyone who ventured out after closing 
was at risk. Juvenal, who was an ancient writer, laments that to go out to supper in Rome without having first made your will was to be guilty of an act of gross negligence. Murders happened at night. Thieves did their work using the cloak of night to hide their deeds. Burglaries happened all the time and they would barricade their doors at night so that people would not break in while they were sleeping. Darkness is an apt metaphor for the sinful condition of humanity because when things in the, under the cover of darkness is when sin happens, when, when death and theft happen. Paul, when he's talking to the church in Corinth, and this is 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, he lists the actions of the church, the orgies and drunkenness, sexual indulgence and debauchery, as a metaphor of immoral conduct in general as the works of darkness. Darkness characterizing the children of this age. Basically, what we have here is that evil happening in darkness and light exposing that evil. This is what Paul says about Jesus. He says, uh, he says that Jesus, upon his return in 1 Thessalonians, I think it's chapter 5, that when Jesus, upon his return, that he will expose the, dark, the deeds done in darkness. That's what he's going to do in his second coming. And the exposure that's to happen, look at verse 20. The reason why the people who do wicked things hate the light and do not come to the light is lest his works should be exposed. Think back to the garden, to the very first sin that was perpetrated. Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge and good of evil. And they realize they're naked. And then they did something. They hid from God. Why did they hid from God? They hid from God because they felt guilty. They felt shame in applying to our um, evangelistic endeavors. When you talk, if you really want to offend someone, if you really want to make uh, yourself uncomfortable in a conversation, you can do one thing and you can have your goal, if your goal is to be uncomfortable, happen every single time. You show them what God's word says about a particular sin. Showing them light, truth from God's word. And watch as the guilt and shame and what that causes people to do. It causes people to get angry. It causes people to not want to interact and try to get out of that conversation. Why? Because that's how we react to sin. This is how darkness reacts to light. Divine intervention is necessary because what's being talked about here is the doctrine or teaching of the Bible about total depravity. The fact that once Adam and Eve sinned, that original sin, that thing that happened in the garden, corrupted us 
that we, we both are, we are guilty of that sin and we're perpetrators of sin. The fact that now, after the fall, we are by nature sinners. And our sin, like verse, uh, verse 19 says, our sin is not something that we don't want, isn't something that we don't want to do. The reason why we sin is because we like it. The reason why we lie is because we don't want to be in trouble. The reason why we steal is because we want what someone else has. The reason what total depravity is, in a nutshell, is the fact that sin has affected our minds, our, our hearts, feelings, and emotions, and even our desires, what we want to do. So that the darkness that we are in is a darkness that, allows us, that doesn't allow us to see truth. It's a darkness that doesn't make us even want to be around truth because we don't want to be condemned. We don't want to feel shame and guilt. Those things don't feel good. And not only that, but we love our sin. Matthew, Matthew Henry said a really cool quote. He said, People hate Christ because they love their sin. Whatever the form that manifests, it doesn't look the same for everyone. But in some way or another, the reason why people hate Christ, the reason why Jesus was crucified by people of darkness, is because they love their sin. Whatever it is particular for you. We have to, when we're talking to people about the good news of Jesus Christ, we have to tell them why they need a Savior. The reason why they need a Savior is because they're lost. Lost comes from this right here. Being lost in darkness, unable to see or not even wanting to see the light. We have to bring the light of God to people. Um... I'm going to allude to this. 1 Peter 1.23 says, Peter says that people, that you have been born again of an imperishable seed. And the very next verses tell what that seed is. What we've been born of, the imperishable seed. And the seed is God's unchanging word. We have to bring light to people. We have to bring God's truth the Bible to people, to lost sinners. And we know that when we do that, it's necessarily going to expose guilt, expose shame. And when we do that, we do that knowing that that's exactly what happened to us. Right? That exposure in the light is something that every follower of Christ has felt. Guilt, shame, and rightly so. Verse 21 but whoever does what is true comes to the light that he may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. It's not that exposure doesn't happen. Exposure does. When, I, when you come to Christ, you see your guilt. You feel your shame. But what it does in you because of God's work in your heart is it causes you to reach out to the Savior for help. 
And when you reach out to the Savior for help, you desire to walk in the truth. And all those good works are not yours. It's not you being better than other people. Those good works that you do are evidence that glorifies God, that He was the one working in you. That's the framing material. That is why divine intervention is necessary. But we see here how God divinely intervenes. And this, how God divinely intervenes, is going to directly affect the method of how we share the gospel with people. Relying on the power of the Holy Spirit in evangelism should mean that we talk to people in a way consistent with the truth that we're talking about here. You know, if you're going to be a car mechanic, you need to know how a car works. It's kind of important. If you want to be a doctor, you have to learn about the human anatomy, how it functions, and how it's supposed to work if you're going to be able to solve problems. If you want to be an electrician, you know, I'm not an electrician. I might come up to my light switch, flip it, and say, you know, this light switch is broken. If I replace this little light switch here, it's going to work. You know, the lights will come on. Well, if you went to electrician school, which I don't know what that's called, if you went to school to be an electrician, you would learn it's probably not that little white switch. It's not probably the switch that's causing the issue, if you know anything about how electricity and circuits work. If you know how something works, if you know that people's minds are darkened, it helps us to understand how we should go about bearing witness to Christ to people. And it's by relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. We see how God divinely intervenes here. Start at verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I'm reading from the ESV here. And the ESV actually reflects in that translation, born again, in verse 3. It reflects Nicodemus' understanding here. There's a Greek word behind there. It's called onothen, is the, is the word that they're born, Jesus says, unless one is born onothen, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, how can a, a man be born onothen? Nicodemus' misunderstanding is that he doesn't realize that Jesus is teaching spiritual truth here. He hears him say, born again, like born a second time. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. That word onothen does have two different meanings. It can mean again or of heaven, from heaven. Jesus basically says here, you must be born from heaven in order to experience new life, uh, to see the kingdom of God. You have to be born of heaven to enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus completely misses this, the point and thinks that he says being born again. 
John uses this word onofen, not only here, but he uses it in four other places, uh, which I can tell you if you want to come up and see me afterwards. He uses that word, and every single time, John uses it to show that Jesus means that someone is born of heaven. Now, that's the point of this text. I'm not saying that to being born again is a bad term. Peter, 1 Peter 20, uh, chapter 1, verse 23, uses the term born again. What's being referred to here, and the point that Nicodemus is missing, is that the divine intervention that is necessary, the way that God divinely intercedes to save people, is that the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life and gives them a new heart. The truth here is that of regeneration. That what is necessary, if man's heart is dark, if they're lost in their sin, and they have no desire to pursue after God, what do we need? We have inherited Adam's sin from Adam our father. We need to have a new heart that's given by our heavenly father. And there's a bunch of different terms. Born again. Born from heaven here. Born of water and spirit. Spiritual circumcision. Spiritual washing. Spiritual transformation. Spiritual transplant. Talking about a heart transplant. These are all terms that refer to the same reality and the same need. Because what we see about darkness and people characterized by darkness, and the reason why Jesus has not entrusted himself to them, is because he needs, if people are to come to him and follow him, they need to be born again. See, this crowd that follows him because the signs he's doing, we see what their heart is later when they follow him for the food that he makes for them. People following him because Jesus makes them food and they want to keep coming back for food and Jesus says, he, he says that you have to, and if you want to have eternal life, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. And you see their heart because they know he's from God, but they realize, see, this guy must be crazy. What am I doing following this guy? I'm not going to follow him. But we see that the faith of the disciples was different because the way they responded was, we don't understand these things, but we have no place else to go. Because, you, because Jesus is from God, we know we must follow you. That's the difference right there. That's what it looks like to be in darkness versus in light. To be, have a heart that's not regenerated versus a heart that has been regenerated. The divine, the divine intervention that is needed for salvation that Jesus talks about here is the intervention of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus goes on, this divine intervention, if you think about it, if you were just born again, if you just received a new heart, if you had a new heart and you hated the darkness, but you were still left in darkness, what would your hope be? If you were given a new heart, hated your sin, but didn't have anything to place your trust in, any light to see, what would be your hope? The divine intervention that's presented here 
is the divine intervention of the Son working according to the Father's plan. We see here that salvation is a Trinitarian work, that all three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are all at work in saving a human being, in making a follower of Christ. And I want to just show you uh, what the Son's work is. Um, This is starting at verse 10. He critiques him. He talks to Nicodemus about how he should, you know, if he doesn't explain, if he does not believe what he talked about heaven and what he talked about earth, that he won't believe things about heaven. In verse 14, I think is a key passage that we often miss when reading the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. What Jesus does here is he gives him a picture of what the son, his work is going to be. What his work on the cross is going to be. Think back to the picture that he's painting. His picture that he's painting is from Numbers chapter 21 verses 1 through 9. If you were to read that, you'd see that the Israelites had sinned. That they uh, rejected God. And God sent snakes to bite them. And then God had them look at a bronze serpent in order to be saved. How on earth is that a picture of what Jesus has done? How is that a picture of God so loving the world that he gave his only son? Well, you have to look at the story. Living in sin, living in darkness, rejecting the God, uh, and complaining about your circumstances, complaining about your lack of comforts that you had in Egypt. Imagine you were one of those Israelites You're sleeping in the tent outside in the wilderness. You're enjoying a good sleep. And you don't notice the slithering snake coming in your tent. You are awoken by the snake's fangs plunging into your leg. You wake up with a scream and you swat it off you. You hit it off. But you notice it's too late. The pain from his fangs has now transmitted to painful area that's now spreading throughout your body. You feel the burning sensation moving through you. And you cry out in pain and you start you move make your way out of the tent on your hands and knees and you notice that other people have experienced the same phenomena. Other people are lying on the ground dead. Other people are lying screaming in pain. But then you're told something You're told there's hope for you yet. God has provided salvation in a bronze serpent of all things. That if you just look up to that bronze serpent, fix your gaze on it, that God will heal you. You look up. You fix your gaze on it. You obey. And then you're healed. What a better picture could there be of Jesus' work on the cross? This is why he says that God did not send his world, uh, did send his son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
we might not recognize the spiritual danger that we are in, that we are dying in a dying world, that all the people around us are dying. We might not recognize that, but that's the reality of the situation. And salvation, how Jesus has intervened in history to save us is that he accomplished a work that all we have to do to be saved is to fix our gaze on the person of Jesus Christ, trust in him alone, trust in God's promises to save us, and he will heal us. He will deliver us. That is salvation. That is the picture here. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, that whoever fixes their gaze up on Jesus Christ, crucified for their sins, have no reason to fear condemnation. If you're wondering, how does a person not feel afraid to move into the light knowing that their guilt and shame will be exposed? Well, this is why. Christians pursue Christ knowing that our guilt and shame will be removed because we know that we're not going to be condemned by God. The reason why we move to Christ, even though He's going to make us uncomfortable with our sin, is because we know that He loves us and has already paid for all the penalties of our sins. That's why we confess our sins to God, knowing that He's faithful and just to forgive us. This is the divine intervention. This is how it works. Well, how does this affect how we share the gospel with others? Probably when we're explaining the gospel, when we're talking to other people, we should probably give them God's word, right? God's message. Less of us and more of showing them Jesus Christ on the cross. Less of us More of the Bible, where you read and get to know who Jesus is. Less of our philosophizing and explaining about how the universe works, and more of getting people to read the Bible, to see how God works, who God is, and what He's done. And to us to move towards that light, so that we can bear witness to the world what children of light look like. Not to be hypocrites. Because we know our guilt and shame. We see it exposed daily. And we need to show people what that looks like. This is why relying on the power of the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential to evangelism. Because the divine salvation as presented in the Bible is divine intervention. That divine intervention is seen as a need because we are living in darkness. We can't save ourselves. That divine intervention is a work of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit changes who we are, make us people who love the light, which is the light, by the way, is God's word. Read the prologue of John. It's Jesus Christ himself. Make us people who love the light, And then we just look to the work that God has done. The Son accomplishing God the Father's plan. Uh, There's a good book um, that I read about 
Jesus' ministry that goes through the different, uh, different key moments in Jesus' life so that people can see uh, who Jesus is and what he did. Uh, it's called Ichthys. This is a quote from that book that I thought was very helpful in understanding this text. John, it's kind of extended. John 1, 9 says that the reason why the Son of God assumed our flesh is he came, writes John, as a light to give illumination to darkened minds. In John 3, 19, he tells us that by nature we love the darkness rather than the light because only there can we hide from God and feel secure in our sin. John 3.20. And then we begin to get used to the darkness, perhaps even eventually claiming that the darkness is something normal. If my heart and mind were full of light, I would love God with all my heart and mind. But by nature, I love Him with neither. I may naively say that God is love. But what I mean by that is that He is tolerant of the fact that I don't love him. How darkened is my mind. But the story doesn't end there. Jesus brought light into darkness. He shone light into the mental darkness in the mind of Nicodemus. He shone light into the moral darkness of the woman he met at the well. And into the darkness brought by death into the home of Mary and Martha, when their brother died. And that's exactly our need. We need to see him as he really is, and not as we imagine him to be. Not as a great moral teacher, or as a convenience to help us along in life, but as the inextinguishable light who shines in the darkness. That's what we need to give people. Relying on the power of the Holy Spirit means Giving people God's word that will dispel any misunderstandings of who Jesus is and what he's done. Unafraid, like Jesus, to teach people all of God's word, not just the easy truths, not avoiding anything. Knowing that it's God's word that acts as the seed to sprout spiritual life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. For giving us the Bible. Though we have it, we often neglect it. Lord, we don't realize that what we have before us is the word of the Holy Spirit. The word of truth. The word that the Holy Spirit uses in the minds of individuals to give them new hearts. Being enlightened by the truth in our mind, in our hearts. And even enlightenment in our desires. Lord, I pray that as we read your word, that we would submit to it. That you would help our minds to understand it. Our hearts to love it. And our desires to be always to follow after you. Lord, I pray that we would not just do this for ourselves. That we would not just read our Bibles and go after the truth of God but that we would also do that with others. That we would bring God's word to the lost world around us, knowing that they are in danger. That, Lord, we would constantly be crying out to you in prayer because divine intervention is something only God can do, not us. 
Lord, may we not rely on our own skills, not deceive people around us, only need our uh, education to be, that people's problem is somehow just that if they knew more, then they would turn, that all we have to do is be more articulate, more persuasive, and then the world will come and follow Jesus. Lord, we know that's not the case. Your son was articulate, and people rejected him. Paul was articulate, and people stoned him. Lord, we confess that our problem is that by nature we live in darkness. And I pray that understanding that we would cry out to you for help for those we love. Cry out to you for those who are lost in spiritual darkness. Lord, we thank you for drawing us into your light. I pray that we live according to the light of Scripture as a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths all of our days, not in hypocrisy, but in gratefulness of the work that you're doing in us. It's in Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen.